As you return to your seats, I want to invite you to open with me to the book of Ruth. Last week, we began our first of three messages that will take us through the book of Ruth, a book that I'm convinced is just the perfect book for us to walk through this time of the year, especially as we're thinking about and contemplating and perhaps especially focusing on the Incarnation. This morning, our text is going to be Ruth, chapters 2 and 3. And what I want to do is for the public reading of God's Word, I want to read chapter 2, and then about halfway through the sermon as we turn to focus on chapter 3, I want to then read chapter 3 as well. So we'll read through both of them, but right now I simply want to read chapter 2. And so uh, if you're able, uh, I want to invite you, having turned to Ruth chapter 2, to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's Word. If you have a red Bible, Ruth 2 begins on page 222. Let's hear the reading of God's Word. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. She said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered her, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? When you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you've comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, so also she brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. 
So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you should go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. She remains standing as we pray. Father, your word is so good. So would you now hold up the glory of what you have revealed to us and empower me so that my words might be a demonstration of the power of the Spirit, Lord, exalting the revelation of God, what you have given us here. We live not merely by what we eat, but by every word that you have given us. So sustain us now as we look upon and delight in and feed upon your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. In a book on the doctrine of sin... Brian Chappell writes a chapter called Repentance that sings. And in the chapter, he tells the story of Dan and Carol Walker, a couple who on November 8th in 1995 gave birth to their newborn son. Everything seemed to be glorious and perfect. A time of rejoicing, the child seemed healthy, all was well. And then soon after the child had his first feeding, about 15 minutes after that, he began to turn blue His vital signs began to fade. It looked for all uh, to see there that he was going to die before them. And so they grabbed the baby and took him, and they found out that there was a valve in his esophagus that wasn't working properly, so that there were times he was suffocating, he was going to have to require surgery. So the newborn son then of Dan and Carol Walker goes into surgery while they and some Christian friends of theirs wait. As you can imagine, surgery on a newborn is a time of great tension and stress, and so they waited anxiously, praying the entire time through the surgery, wondering if their child would survive. At one point, then, the doctor enters back into the room and announces to them, the surgery has gone well. The child's going to live. Their son will be fine. No lasting consequences of this problem with his valve and the esophagus. And Brian Chappell says, in that room that day, Dan and Carol and their friends first erupted in cheering and then spontaneously burst into singing. As they sang in that room today, that day, the doxology, praise God to whom all blessings flow. Since he wrote this chapter in a book on sin, Brian Chappell makes the observation If we could view sin as dangerous to our souls as we view disease dangerous to our bodies, perhaps we should understand that just as that surgery was followed by singing, so should repentance be followed by singing, because it is something to celebrate. And I think as we study through the book of Ruth, after seeing chapter 1, this ability to look into the lives of these characters and diagnose their sin, 
and the consequences and the effects of it so that we might see the same thing in ourselves, I think chapters 2 and 3 are an occasion for singing. Chapters that should, I think, cause our hearts to burst forth in praise to God because what you find in chapters 2 and 3 is a complete reversal. We find a Naomi whose heart is entirely different, Ruth bent on obeying the Lord, and you find God's providential kindness and blessing. So what I want to do is I simply want to highlight this story itself. It's a glorious story. We'll make some observations. I want to highlight this story under two headings. One heading I'll give you, and we'll walk through chapter 2, and then we'll stop, and I'll give you another heading, and we'll walk through chapter 3. And the first heading I want to give us, the first point of the sermon, if you will, to walk through this text is simply this, a recognition of God's gracious providence. A recognition of God's gracious providence. Now, when we use the word providence, here's what we're referring to. The God who created the world and everything in it, the God whom we know as the God who reigns over all things, our God did not create the world in a miraculous way only to step away from it. The world is not like a watch that God kind of wound up and then walked away from now that it can wind and move and do all of its workings on its own. Rather, the Bible presents God as a God who is intimately and meticulously involved in His creation, working everything to its perfect end to bring glory to His name and good to His people. In other words, the Bible presents God as a hands-on God, you might say, in working with His world. That's what we mean when we speak of God's providence, His powerful, intimate, meticulous, hands-on working in this world so that everything is carried out to its end of bringing glory to His name and good to His people. What we then find, I'm saying, in chapters 2 and 3 is a gracious providence. We see God graciously working. Chapter 2 begins with the introduction of a new character, a character who's spoken of as a worthy man, that is a virtuous. This is a good, godly Israelite. We read in verse 1, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, he comes into play for this reason. Once Naomi and Ruth leave Moab and they get back to Bethlehem, they're not in good financial shape. They've been out of Bethlehem for at least 10 years. We know of from chapter 1 that they went to Moab for 10 years and came back. And now they're back, and Ruth recognizes because Elimelech, Naomi's husband, has died, because her own husband, Naomi's son, has now died as well, that the responsibility most likely falls on Ruth to be able to provide for her mother and care for her. And so one of the things that she suggests to her mother-in-law, she says, why don't I go out into one of the fields and maybe someone will be gracious to me. I'll find favor in their eyes, she says, and they'll let me glean. And so Naomi thinks uh, this is a good idea, and so she sends her out. Now, the reason that Ruth has this idea is not because Ruth has just been sitting around thinking, is there anything that I could benefit from? Is there any way that I could find sustenance and nourishment for my family? No, this was actually a law in Israel that if you were poor, 
one of the things you could do is go into the field of those who own the field and are harvesting because the law required this. The law required for, for those who are harvesting not to harvest all of the crop. They were specifically instructed on the edges of their field to leave some of the harvest for the poor and the sojourners to come along. So after individuals are harvesting, the poor and the sojourners could walk in their field after them and find that the edge of the harvest was left for them to glean. Not only that, they were also instructed that in their harvesting, if they drop any, don't bend down to pick it up. Just leave it. The poor and the sojourner can come in after you and pick up what you've dropped. And so this was a a law that God had put in place to provide for the poor amongst the people of Israel. So what Ruth is doing is something that fit very well within the law. So we're told in verse 3, something glorious happens. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. I want to note something for us in verse 3. When the biblical author says something like, she happened to come, it's his way of being ironic. You can study the Old Testament, and where this kind of language is used, it is almost always used in cases where the reader is clearly to see this is the hand of God. In other words, it's the irony used here by the biblical author that is screaming to the reader, hey, 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 this has God's hand all over it. God is doing this. So she comes to the field of a man named Boaz who is immensely generous to her. Boaz shows up and he says to his supervisor, hey, whose whose woman is that? And and the the supervisor says, that's the woman, Ruth, who came from Moab, the Moabite who came with Naomi. And all of a sudden, it clicks in Boaz's mind. I know exactly who she is. He's heard of her kindness that she showed to Naomi, how she bound herself to her and has been looking to care for her, provide for her. And so, Boaz goes over to Ruth and he says, here's what I want you to do. First of all, you don't have to day-to-day wonder whose field you're going to go to. You're going to come to my field every day. Not only that, but I want you to walk very closely with my female workers. You can just work among them as if you're one of my servants. Not only that, but you don't have to worry about any of the men harassing you. And the reason you don't have to worry about any of the men harassing you is because I've instructed all of them, do not touch her. So she has food provided for every day, she has company working among the female servants, and she has safety. She knows the men aren't going to harass her. And her immediate, and not only that, he even says, listen, when the men draw water for themselves to drink, you go over there and look at what they've drawn and you drink it as much as you want. And she's overwhelmed by his grace to her and her favor that she's receiving in his sight, and she knows she doesn't deserve it. She says, what in the world? How are you showing me this kindness? I'm a a foreigner. I'm a Moabite. I'm poor, wandering into this area. But he says to her, listen, I know what you've done for Naomi. Word of what you've done has spread. And here's the blessing that he then pronounces on her, verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, 
under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That is to say, what Boaz recognizes in verse 12 is, Ruth hasn't just left her homeland of Boab. Ruth has turned from the false gods of Moab, and she is now devoting herself to the God of Israel. That is to say, Ruth is a convert. This is someone who has left the Moabites and committed herself to Israel, left the false gods of the Moabites and committed herself to the true God of the Bible. She's like Rahab. You remember the story of Rahab in Joshua 2? Rahab was a prostitute living in Jericho, having devoted her life to sin and the devotion of sinful false gods. And all of a sudden, when Joshua sends the spies into Jericho, Rahab is converted and devotes herself to the devotion and worship of the God of Israel and comes into the life of Israel and marries a godly man named Salmon. This is who we're to see that Ruth is. And interestingly, Boaz recognizes that she's committed herself to Israel's God and therefore he blesses her not only in the ways I've mentioned, but he invites her to dinner and he gives her so much food she has some left over. And not only that, but he tells her that she can work throughout the entire harvest season. That is, not only is she going to be there through the time of barley harvest, but she's going to be there through the time of wheat harvest as well. And then he goes further. He instructs his men. Not only do I want you to leave the edges of the field, I want you to leave a little more for her. And I want you not only, if you drop something, not to pick it up, I want you to intentionally harvest some, bundle it up, and then drop it on purpose. This is immense blessing. And so Ruth gets home, and Naomi asks her, how did it go? We read it in verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She says, obviously, someone has been gracious to you because you have this leftover dinner. You have all of this barley. We read, she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name is Boaz. The man with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now, when you read chapter 2, verse 20, you and I are to recognize Naomi has changed. This is a woman in chapter 1 who is oblivious to any blessings of the Lord. In fact, she is a woman who is so bitter in her soul toward God and blaming Him for everything that has happened that she says, you will not call me anymore Naomi, you will call me Mara, Mara meaning bitter. And she is yoking herself to the Israelites who were bitter against the Lord and grumbled against Him and blamed Him, ignoring His blessings all in the wilderness. The Naomi of chapter 2 verse 20 it's the Naomi who bears the fruit of repentance. She is a Naomi who looks nothing like that. Instead of missing the blessings of the Lord, she acknowledges that God has not forsaken the living or the dead. She is making note that the Lord is being gracious not only to her, but to her dead husband as well. 
She makes note of the Lord's loving kindness and faithfulness when she says in verse 20, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living. The word kindness is the Hebrew word hesed. It's, it's, it's a word that's used consistently in Hebrew to refer to God's covenant faithfulness, to his steadfast love, the, the devotion of God toward his people. Now, Naomi is a woman who recognized God's blessing, who feels his devotion toward her. Instead of yoking herself to the bitter and grumbling Israelites, the language of chapter 2, verse 20, actually sounds a lot like Genesis 24, 27. What's going on in Genesis 24, 27? What's going on in Genesis 24 is Abraham sends out his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. And when he finds Rebekah, he says, Blessed be the Lord who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. That's a recognition of God's faithfulness and a recognition from his servants. Now we see the same thing in Naomi. God is being faithful. And not only has God been faithful in providing a man who was gracious to Ruth and to provide this food, but she ends verse 20, Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, that note is probably lost on us because we don't know, we don't have redeemers. What in the world is redeemer? Well, just as I mentioned that in the law, God provided for a way to pour for poor people to have food by making these laws about harvesting, so the Lord provided for situations where the man in a family may die and leave his family and his clan vulnerable. And what the Lord instituted was a close relative of that man would serve as what was called a redeemer. And what the redeemer would have the responsibility for then, after the man and his clan had died, a patriarch, if you will, had died, is the redeemer would come along and make sure that that man's land did not pass away from his clan, that it would be inherited and stay in his family. He would have the responsibility, if any, man, if any individual in the man's clan had, had become poor because the man had died and had to sell himself into slavery, the Redeemer would have the responsibility to buy that man back out of slavery, to restore the clan. He would have the responsibility to make justice was executed, and make sure justice was executed. So if there had been a, a crime against the man, maybe the man had been killed, the Redeemer would have the responsibility to come along and make sure justice was carried out. And finally, the Redeemer would have the responsibility to receive and handle any money that was due to the man. So the man had loaned out money and it was being paid back to him or something like this, you might say. Maybe not that precisely. But if the man was somehow owed money or money came to him, the Redeemer would be making sure that that money was collected and distributed properly. And we can add, in the exceptional cases, that the man's son had died before having any offspring, it would seem, though it's not explicit, that the Redeemer would have the responsibility of coming into the clan and marrying and make sure the line of that man continued. And here we have in Ruth chapter 2, a man named Boaz in whose field Ruth happened to wander, who is a close relative of Elimelech and who could serve as a redeemer. He could even marry Ruth. But wait a second. I mean, let's be realistic. He could marry Ruth. 
But Ruth was a Moabite. No, now, sure, sure. She's converted. He recognizes she's converted in chapter 2, verse 12. But she was a Moabite. Moabites are not good people. So what are the chances that Boaz could look at Ruth and not think, yeah, she's an Israelite now, but I bet she's a second-class Israelite. One who used to be a Moabite. Someone I don't even want to get close to. I'll give you one guess who Boaz's mother is. Rahab. The prostitute. Who came out of Jericho and married Salmon. And together they had Boaz. Into whose field Ruth happened to wander. So what you have then in Ruth chapter 2. Is Ruth happened to wander into the field of a man who was gracious to her. She happened to wander into the field of someone who was related to Elimelech, her dead father-in-law, who could serve as her redeemer, even marrying her, and happened to wander into the field of an Israelite who knew firsthand that someone could come out of a foreign people and devote herself to the God of Israel and be a faithful Israelite who is worthy of marrying. All of that happened to have come about. We know better, don't we? Ruth 2 is an example and a picture of the gracious providence of God who is working all of these things toward His gracious end. And here's what I want to say to us this morning. The God of Ruth chapter 2 is our God. It's sometimes difficult, I think, for us to read stories like this and recognize as we know all of this, that the same God who's doing this in the lives of His people then is our God, who has promised, for example, to work all things together for your good and for my good. What that promise means is, God says to us, I'm going to be meticulously involved, hands-on in your life. And everything that comes about is going to have my fingerprints on it, shaping and working for your good to make you more like Jesus Christ. In other words, Ruth chapter 2 is happening in your life and my life right now. This is who our God is and what He is doing. And it's good for us to recognize it. I've been teaching an, <clears throat> an online course through university on the East Coast, and one of the assignments that the students had to do in the course was keep a journal for 20 days. And this past week, one evening, I had to grade those journals, and as I had to grade them and recognize that the assignment had mentioned that they needed to put in 20 days of entries, I instantly regretted that. <laughs> because what it meant is that I had to read 20 journal entries from every single student. And as I was hating my life and myself and all of these things, reading these, I did find myself really edified in, in, a, in a way that, that um, is abnormal. As I was reading these, I remember reading the journal entries of one student who very early on in his 20 days of journal writing said, um, we've had a crisis happen in our home and all of this money needs to be put into our bathroom because they had a leak or something had gone wrong and insurance is not going to cover it and I don't think I have the money to pay for it. And you could feel the panic in that journal entry. 
And so the whole time I'm reading along and I'm just following a story. And um, because of the assignment, whether he wanted to or not, he was having to chronicle all of it. And so for 20 days of this, we walked through. And finally, in one of the latter weeks, he says, today I went to settle up with the RS who had reported that I actually owed them more money than I thought I did. And when I went to talk to them about how in the world I was going to pay this, they shared with me they had made a mistake. And actually, I was owed money from them. It's going to be deposited to my account, and it's going to be sufficient to cover those bathroom expenses. Now, what hit me was not that the Lord doesn't do those kinds of things. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't, but he does do those things at occasion. What hit me is without this assignment of journaling, I wonder if the student would have connected what God was doing. You see, so many times I think we're oblivious to the fact that our lives could look very much like Ruth chapter 2. I happen to do this, and then I happen to do this, and then this happened to go this way, when the reality is it's your loving, gracious Father who's directing and guiding and meticulously involved in the details of your life. That's Ruth chapter 2, a recognition of God's gracious providence. Ruth chapter 3, my second heading, an act of trusting obedience in light of God's gracious providence. So if Ruth chapter 2 helps us recognize God's gracious providence, the next chapter lets us see an individual, individuals trusting and acting. The chapter reads this way. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash and anoint you wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? She answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman has come to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, 
until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Chapter 2 had begun with Ruth acting, a means of providing for Naomi. I should go out into a field. Chapter 3 begins with Naomi acting. She hatches a plan. She recognizes that at the end of the harvest season, Boaz would be out in the threshing floor that night. The reason for that is because the way that you would work with uh, the harvest is you would take a winnowing fork and you would scoop up what you had harvested and you would toss it up into the air and the wind would, would carry away the chaff and what you needed, the grain would fall to the ground. The problem is during the day, the winds could whip up a good bit and so often harvesters would do this at night at the threshing floor. Not only that would they do it at night, but because this was a prized possession of theirs, their harvest from the season, they did not want to leave it alone for perhaps thieves to come in and take and steal it. And so Naomi knows that Boaz will be there tonight at the threshing floor, and not only that, that he will stay the night. And so this sets the stage. She tells Ruth, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bathe. I want you to put perfume on. I want you to put your cloak on. And then I want you to go to Boaz. He's going to be at the threshing floor. But I don't want you to make yourself known to him until after he's fallen asleep. I want you to wait till he's eaten, until he's um, drank something. And then he's going to lie down. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go up to him, uncover his feet, and just lie down at his feet. When he wakes up, do what he tells you to do. It's an odd plan, isn't it? It's not the way I think any of us would instruct our children on how to find a spouse. (laughs) Some have suggested that it's perhaps inappropriate. I don't think it is. Let me give you a few few reasons why I do not think it's... Well, let me first tell you why people think it's inappropriate. Some have suggested what what Naomi was doing is suggesting that Ruth uh, commits sexual immorality with Boaz. That's not what's going on. The reason that they suggest it is because knowing that the harvesters would sometimes stay the night, this provided a ground for prostitutes at times to approach them. They could approach the man. He's out there on the threshing floor alone. Maybe he'll do something indecent. Not only that, would that be something that prostitutes would do on occasion, but, but feet in the Bible can sometimes be used as a euphemism for the male reproductive organs. And so is the suggestion that, that, that she uncover his feet, that, that, that she make him expose himself or something like this, right? You can see why someone would think this could be immoral. Here's why I don't think it is. Number one, because Ruth is mentioned specifically in chapter 3, verse 11, as being a worthy woman. That is to say, she is a virtuous woman. You'll remember that's the same description of Boaz in chapter 2, verse 1. So throughout both of these chapters, the author is sending the message, these are godly people, virtuous people, Ruth and Boaz. It's unlikely, it's difficult to imagine that Ruth would be willing to do something immoral, and even if she were willing to do this thing, it's unlikely and conceivable that Boaz would not rebuff her, would not shoo her away. Not only that, but it is true that feet can be used as a euphemism in the Hebrew Bible for the male reproductive organs. But the word that is used for feet in those euphemistic expressions is not the same word used here. And I can, one commentator suggested the only reason the author would change the word is because he wants to make clear, I'm not meaning this as euphemism. 
The word he uses is always literally translated in referring to feet, the area below the knees. So what's going on? Why in the world does Naomi, first of all, say, I want you to bathe, put on perfume, and put on your cloak? Well, we're helped because of 2 Samuel 12. Here's what goes on in 2 Samuel 12. David gets news that his son, whom he had with Bathsheba, is dying. And so David is mourning. And he mourns and mourns and wails and won't eat and is lamenting and and going through all of this mourning until finally his son dies. And then at that point, after his son dies, we're told in 2 Samuel 12, 20, that David bathed, anointed himself with perfume, and put on his cloak. The exact same word used for the garment here. And what it suggested in 2 Samuel 12 is that the time of mourning was over. And David was ready to move on with his life. I think it is reasonable for us to understand that until this point, Ruth, whose husband had died so that she was a widow, had been wearing the garments of mourning. She would have been wearing an attire that signaled to everybody, I am a widow in mourning. And no man would have approached her, dare asking that she might be his wife. Because she was clearly sending the message, she's in mourning. But by bathing and putting on perfume and putting on her cloak, she is sending the message, I'm ready to move on in life. Even if possible, remarrying. And so she obeys Naomi. She goes to the threshing floor. She waits for Boaz to eat and drink and lie down, drift off into sleep. And then she goes and and, and uncovers his feet. We're told at midnight he's startled, probably because he's cold, probably because she uncovered his feet. (laughs) He's startled. He turns over. He looks at Ruth and he says, who are you? And she answers that she's Ruth, one of his servants, But then she says something that is amazing. We read of it in verses 8 and 9. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet, meaning that's not an everyday occurrence. He said, who are you? She answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Then she says this, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. What does she mean by that? Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. Here's what she's saying. Marry me. Marry me because I recognize that you're a close relative of Elimelech, a redeemer of our family, and you can bear the responsibility of taking me on as your wife and fulfilling all of these responsibilities. Chapter 3, verse 9 is a marriage proposal. Now, Boaz's response is amazing. In verse 10, he responds, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. What Boaz is saying in verse 10 is that he recognizes her godliness and her faithfulness. Now, what? Why would he be seeing this 
marriage proposal of Ruth saying, marry me, serve as my redeemer and as the redeemer for my family, why would he see that and recognize in verse 10, you are faithful, you are godly. The same word of her kindness is the word that that Naomi recognized before about the Lord. The, The Lord's faithfulness is steadfast love. Boaz is saying, I see that in you, Ruth. You are faithful, you're godly. What a virtuous and good woman you are. Why? Why does he recognize her as being godly? Why does he say in verse 10, the the kindness, the devotion you're showing right now is even greater than I've seen in you before, even when you came back and devoted yourself to Naomi? The answer is in the word of her proposal in verse 9, for you are a redeemer. In other words, what Boaz recognizes, and this is what he says in verse 10, you could have gone after other younger men. Boaz is saying, what I recognize right now is that you're not asking me to serve as your redeemer just because you want to get married. If that were the case, you could have gone after better, younger, more attractive men. But that's not what you're doing. You're attempting, now get this, Ruth, a Moabite, who should have no allegiance to this family, except that she committed herself to them, Ruth is seeking about the redemption of Elimelech's family. And Boaz recognizes it. You're not just going after finding some man to marry. You could find a young man. You're coming to me because I'm a redeemer. You're doing this because of your devotion to your dead father-in-law, whom you should have no devotion to, because of your mother-in-law, whom you need not be devoted to. And so what he says to her in verses 11 and following is, I will do it. I recognize that you're devoted to the Lord, you're devoted to Naomi, you're seeking to redeem the clan of Elimelech, and so I'll do it, but here's a problem. There's another relative who's more closely related to Elimelech than I am. And so consequently, if you're ready for someone to redeem you, he would have first right of refusal, if you will. He he should be the one who could claim this. So I'm going to go talk to him. And, and, and you lie here through the night, and then in the morning you leave. He wants to make sure her decency is protected, his good name is protected. So he says, don't tell anyone that you were here. She gets up and she leaves before dark. But before he's, oh, let me do this other thing too. One of the reasons we know that, that he, she really did intend simply to seek redemption is because here's what he says in verse 13. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, Good. Let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Now, if she were just wanting to get married, that's not the response you give. Imagine, you know, whatever, 20-something years ago now, Lily walking up to me and saying, I would like to marry you. And I go, you know what? I room with a really great guy. Let Let me first go check with him. And if he wants to marry you, you can marry him. But if he doesn't, I will. The reason you don't say that, <laughs> take, take that note, right? Uh, single, single men. The reason you don't say that in, in this hypothetical situation I've created is because a woman is saying, I want to marry you. I'm not just looking for a husband. I want you. The reason Boaz can say, Let me go talk to this other man, and if he's willing to marry you, you can marry him. The reason he knows he can say that is because he sees the purity of Ruth's heart. 
She really is seeking a redeemer. And he is overwhelmed at the faithfulness of this woman to do good to the family of Naomi, a family that, again, she should have no real ties to. So before she leaves, he tells her, pull out your garment and I'm going to put all of this barley in. And she goes home with a big load of barley. Naomi asks her, how in the world did it go? She tells him all the situation. And she says, and he sent me this load of barley. Naomi interprets that as the message from Boaz of saying, I'm going to get this matter settled. Because here's how the chapter ends, verse 18. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And so we wait, waiting to see how this story will end in Ruth chapter 4. Will the closer redeemer want to marry Ruth? Will Boaz end up marrying her? How will it go? But in one sense, we're not on pins and needles, are we? Not only because, my guess is, you may have read the story, you know how it ends, If you haven't, this is really exciting. We'll see it next week. (laughs) But the reason we're not on pins and needles is because we can tell nothing in the story is happening by accident, is it? God is orchestrating everything here. And I mentioned last week that one of the benefits of stories is that sometimes you can more easily see things in the lives of others and it helps you diagnose them, things that you might miss in yourself. And so we looked at sin and its consequences in chapter 1. One of the dangers of stories is that you can read about the lives of real people and think, yes, but they're just characters in a story. And that is not how I want us to walk away from Ruth chapters 2 and 3. Because I want to say this to you, listen, I do not know the circumstances of your life. I do not know what you're going through. And it may feel to you like Where you are is a place where it's really difficult. You did not imagine your life being this way. You feel a bit more hopeless than you thought you would. You don't understand how it's all going to work out. And what I want to say to you is this. The God who is writing the story of Boaz and Naomi and Ruth is writing your story as well. He's the same providential God who's saying, now watch, I'm going to work everything in this person's life, in my child's life, for his good, for her good. I'm going to work every detail to make my child more like my son, Jesus Christ. In other words, there is one who has a vested interest in how your life goes, and it is our providentially, graciously working God. And he's not limited by your circumstances. He's not throwing his hands up going, I have no idea how we got into this mess. He is working and he is guiding. And if you say, but but, but really, I mean, Ruth and Naomi, Boaz, they seem like prominent people. I'm just me. Well, the way I want to end is by saying this. This story is about you and me. The story ends with a genealogy. We'll see this next week. I'll go ahead and tell you, Ruth and Boaz get married. (laughs) They have a son who has a son who has a son who has a son all the way down until one is born, son of Joseph the carpenter, husband of Mary, the one who gives birth to Jesus the Christ. 
And Jesus Christ, as we've heard and sung about, grew up to live a perfect life, died to pay for our sins, and rose from the dead. And the means God used to bring him about, fleshly speaking, were the details of this story. The reason it's important that Boaz and Ruth get together and have a child is because the Lord is bringing in a Savior into the world. And I'll tell you something crazy. Naomi, nor Ruth, nor Boaz ever got to see him. But you and I live on this side of his death and resurrection. And we know of everything that God has done for our redemption in Christ. This story is for me and you. This is God saying to us, these are the ends to which I will go so that you, my child, might be saved. And so this morning, do not doubt for one second his care for you, his affection for you, but recognize his gracious providence and trust and obey him in it. For the God of Ruth 2 and 3 is our God. And if we ever doubt that he cares for us and is working all for our good, this meal is a weekly reminder that when we were at our worst point, when we were his enemies, his son came and lived and died and was raised, giving his body and shedding his blood so that we might have forgiveness of sins. So this morning, if you're not a believer, I want to plead with you to place your faith in Christ and then make that known by being baptized. If you would like to talk to me or someone else after the service, we would love to talk to you about that. If you're a believer this morning, professed faith, you're in good standing, a member of a gospel preaching church, then we're going to take a moment of silence. The ushers will come forward, the musicians are going to place, then we'll distribute the bread and the cup. We'll eat together. We'll all then drink together. And it'll be our way of corporately proclaiming, we trust and obey the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Ruth 2 and 3. And so after taking a moment of silence, would you join with us as we come to the table this morning? Let's bow our heads.